Morning, church family. It is so good to be with you. I believe that uh, nobody comes to church by accident. So if you're here in God's house, you're joining us online. I believe God wants to speak to you today. About once a quarter, we do introduce everyone who went through the last membership class and completed the membership process. And so whether you're a member or not, you, you know, anyone who attends this church can fully enjoy the worship, the teaching, the congregational care, and the ministries of the church. Um, but to us, membership's a big deal. It's a sign of a commitment. It's a sign of someone saying, this, this church is home for me. And so last fall, we had our largest membership class ever. And so this weekend, we are welcoming our largest cohort of members ever. So we have about this. Uh, I think you might have been able to see this little mini directory practically uh, as you came in. Um, we're welcoming 42 new members this weekend. So, yeah. If you are one of those new members being welcomed, if you're here this week, uh, will you please stand in this service? So any new members in this service, I don't know if I see anybody, um, but there's a couple. So Matt and Kelly, okay. So if you're a new member, hey, family, make a, make a mental note of who they are and uh, introduce yourselves to them after the service. We're so grateful for the, Lord, the people that the Lord are bringing uh, to this church family. Our next membership class is next Saturday uh, morning, February 26th from 9 to 12. Um, whether you're brand new to the church or whether you've been here a while but just now interested in membership, that's the class to attend. In this class, you'll hear more about our mission, our vision, our doctrinal beliefs, our ministries. Um, you're not committed to anything if you attend the class. If you just want to know more about who we are as a church, again, that class is next Saturday. Uh, we do know, need to know your interest, especially if you need childcare. So if you could just mark that on your Connect card or through the app, uh, that would be appreciated. So listen, family, one of the things they teach you in Preaching 101 is not to intentionally start arguments. But I'm going to violate that principle right now. <laughs> so I'm going to ask you a couple of questions, and I want you to be able to weigh in and, and speak so I can hear your answer. So here's, the, here's question one. Tell me who you think, who's the greatest basketball player of all time? Jordan, Jordan, who? Larry Bird? The, the correct answer is Michael Jordan. The correct answer is Michael Jordan. Bill Russell's a close second. All right, let's try this one. What singer had the greatest singing voice of all time? Who's got the greatest singing voice? Michael Jackson? Whitney Houston? Okay. All right. The answer is Aretha Franklin. I would have accepted uh, Ella Fitzgerald as well. What's the greatest movie of all time? Star Wars. No, listen. If your answer is not set in the Star Wars universe, you're way off base. Let, let's just try an easier question. We'll try an easier question, especially for Pacific Northwest folks. Who's the greatest Seattle Seahawk of all time? Russell Wilson. No, Russell Wilson. Steve Largent. The only correct answer is Steve Largent. I'm willing to break fellowship over this issue. You know, listen, so many of you are getting these answers wrong. I'm just going to share, share the facts here. Babe Ruth is the greatest baseball player. Mother Teresa is the greatest humanitarian. The Mandalorian is the greatest television show ever. And uh, Superman's the greatest comic book hero. End of story. Debating who or what the greatest is, is like our national pastime, right? It's our second hobby to be able to debate who we think is the greatest. We will gladly argue over who's the greatest rock band or who's the greatest painter. And often we elevate what's personal opinion to the level of gospel truth. 
But our answers really depend on how we frame and define the word great. For example, in sports, is the greatest athlete the one who's won the most championships? The one with the greatest career statistics? Or the one who's had the largest impact on the game? Right? In literature, is the greatest author the one who's written the most books? Or sold the most books? Or the one whose books are considered classics and must-reads? How do we define greatest and greatness? And what does greatness look like in the kingdom of God? This weekend, we continue our sermon series, Servant Heart, Kingdom Mind, a journey into the life and ministry of Jesus as told through the Gospel of Mark. And last week, we studied the transfiguration of Jesus, and we looked at what power was in the kingdom of God. Today, we're going to study together Mark chapter 9, verses 30 through 37. And these eight verses tell us a lot of what it means to be greatest in God's kingdom. And this is what the Bible said. So they went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he, Jesus, did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand the saying, and they were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me, receives not me, but him who sent me. This is the word of the Lord. So based on the second half of Mark chapter 8, we know that where Jesus and his disciples are at the time of this passage is in the area of Caesarea Philippi. And so verse 33 tells us they leave Caesarea Philippi and they're heading to the city of Capernaum. And so as they journey through the region of Galilee to Capernaum, Jesus told his disciples for the second time what was going to happen to him. He was going to be turned over to religious authorities. And they were going to torture him and kill him. And he was going to die. But on the third day, he was going to rise from the dead. He tells them this. Now, unlike other times in his ministry, Jesus wasn't speaking in parables or metaphors. He was being very straightforward and direct about what was going to happen. Now, even though he told this to his disciples, the Bible actually tells us, and he did not want anyone to know. That meant anyone else to know, for he was teaching his disciples. Right? Jesus didn't want anyone outside of his circle of disciples to hear about this plan about what was going to happen to Jesus. Why? So some speculation here, but I believe that Jesus didn't want people to know what was going to happen to him for the same reason that he often would heal someone and tell them not to tell anyone about the healing. Because it was likely that the people were going to react in a way that was not going to be helpful to Jesus' ministry. We only have to go back to chapter 8 to be able to see an example of this. So three weeks ago, we looked at Mark chapter 8, verses 31 through 33. And in that, season, in that scene, Jesus tells his disciples again, that was the first time he tells them, this is what's going to happen to me. I'm going to die. And Peter's reaction to Jesus' plan 
was to freak out and rebuke Jesus. Right? And that came out of a well-intentioned heart. Peter was disturbed by this news of Jesus' you know, soon-to-be death, and he didn't want that to happen. And that's just one person's reaction. Right? Imagine thousands of other people having that same reaction and desiring and doing whatever they could to prevent Jesus' death. Now, they couldn't have prevented his death. That's what he came to do. He came to die. But they certainly wouldn't have gotten in the way of that, right? It wouldn't have been helpful for them to have reacted in that way. And so Jesus, he keeps this knowledge of his future plan just to his trusted circle of his disciples. And so he's sharing it with his disciples. This is going to happen to me. And they're hearing it for the second time. What was their reaction? The Bible says, but they did not understand the saying and they were afraid to ask him. That word afraid can also be translated terrified. That speaks to their heart here. And I love this reaction because it's very human. Right? They had no idea what Jesus was saying, but were too terrified to ask for clarification. My father was, uh, he believed in tough love in all of us kids. And uh, every summer, a few weeks before school started, he would have us kind of study and prepare for the coming school year. And so one summer, I remember he's explaining like trigonometry to one of my younger brothers. And uh, he explains this complicated formula and asks my brother, do you understand what I just said? My brother's vigorously nodding yes. And the second my father left the room, he turns to me and said, I have no idea what he said. Can you please help me with this? Right? No, under, no idea of what my dad had just said. And yet he was too terrified to ask for clarification. In the same way, this text tells us his disciples, they're too afraid to ask for clarification on something they didn't understand. Now, why, what were they afraid of? Because in my brother's example, he was afraid if he asked a question, my, bro, my dad would yell at him. But what we know about Jesus is he never reacted in an ungodly way out of anger. And so what could they have been afraid of? Well, we can go back to that first time they heard about Jesus' plan to understand where they're coming from. And so this is what the Bible said the first time he told them. He told them what was going to happen, and the Bible says, and he said this plainly. And then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. So look, look from their vantage point. Notice two details. One, that Peter pulled Jesus aside to talk to him right after hearing the plan. And then two, Jesus hears what Peter says and then looks and sees his other disciples and then publicly rebukes Peter. And so from the vantage point of the other disciples, here's what happened. Jesus told their plan. One of their peers, Peter, went to Jesus to ask a question and then gets publicly rebuked. Right? From their vantage point, it's possible that what they were fearing was that if we ask Jesus a question, he's going to rebuke us. And so they kept silent. And so in their silence, they continue their journey to Capernaum. And somewhere along the way, they start talking to each other and not to Jesus. And uh, Jesus knows what they're talking about, right? He's still God. He still knows what they're saying. And so by the time they get to Capernaum, he knows that he has to address this thing that they're off base on. And so he gathers them together to address the issue. And the Bible says, Jesus asked them, so what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. I love this reaction too. Right? This is the second reaction to this passage I love. Because I'm certain that everyone in this room, at one point in their life, did something they shouldn't have done, and got caught doing it, right? And our, and our response is usually like, 
One, out of silence because, well, we don't know what to say. And probably two, because we felt guilt or shame that we got caught doing this thing we shouldn't have do, done, right? My guess is the disciples feel a little bit of both. They know that they shouldn't have been arguing about this, and they didn't know what to say. And so Jesus, he calls his disciples together, and the Bible says that he taught them this incredibly important truth about greatness in the kingdom of God. Listen closely, family, what he says. And he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. If anyone would be first in the kingdom, he must be last of all and servant of all. This is a radical call for the follower of Christ. You know, our tagline for this series is servant heart, kingdom mind. And one of the most fundamental things that we need to understand about the kingdom of God is that the kingdom of God is radically different from the world. It's an upside down kingdom. Nearly every perspective that we've learned from our culture is completely upside down. It's opposite to kingdom teaching. The values of the kingdom, the perspectives of the kingdom, they're different from this world and this culture. For example, right, the culture teaches us that the purpose of marriage is to make two spouses happy. Whereas the kingdom teaches us that the purpose of marriage is to make two people holy. The culture teaches us that you know, money can bring us happiness and we ought to maximize our earnings. Whereas the kingdom teaches us, no, the, the love of money is the root of all evil and we ought to maximize our generosity. It's an upside down kingdom. And here we learn that the kingdom's perspective on greatness is radically different. It's upside down from the world's teaching on greatness. Because you see, here's in our debates on who's the greatest, this is what the world tells us how do we determine who's greatest. We take someone and we compare them to everyone else. Right? So, for example, if we want to debate whether Tom Brady is the greatest football player of all time, we would say, well, you know what? Tom Brady has more career victories than any other football player. More passing yards, more touchdowns, more Super Bowl rings than any other player. We define greatest by comparing him to everyone else and determining whether he's above them. And that's the same with any argument. Greatest tennis player, greatest actor or actress, greatest musical artist. Our framework is comparison to others and seeing whether this person is above. And Jesus throws that mindset out the window. Introduce a different standard and framework for greatness. Because the world's framework for greatness is whether we are above others. And the kingdom's framework for greatness is whether we place others above ourselves. World says, this is greatest. I'm above everyone else. And Jesus says, no, everyone else is above you. A radical call. And this goes against all of our social conditioning. Because you and I live in a me first culture. A culture that tells us to live out our own truth. To seek the fulfillment of our own needs. To look out for number one. That's what our culture teaches us. And we can't even blame the culture completely. Because that's what our sin nature is also telling us. Our own sin nature is telling us, you know, focus on yourself. Be self-focused and self-centered. 
And so this kingdom call for greatness is difficult for us to do, for us to live out. Because it's a radical call. It's upside down. I want to unpack verse 35 a little bit more. So again, the verse says, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. So let's drill into some of these words so that, we, that there's no misunderstandings about what Jesus is calling to us here. So the word first is the Greek word protos. And that means first in rank, first in importance. First means exactly what we think of when we think of the word first. Right? First in line in the grocery store means you're the first one to see the cashier. If you're the first chair in a professional orchestra, it means you're the most skilled and most important musician playing that instrument. And the disciples, they're arguing over who's greatest, and Jesus says, if anyone would be first. So he's connecting first and greatest together. That's what it means. Now, the word last is the Greek word eschatos, from which we get the word eschatology, which is the study of end times, or more literally, the study of the last days. Eschatos means last, last place, last in a series, end of the line, last in rank, eschatos. Eschatos is the opposite of protos in every way. They're the, end, they're the two ends of an extreme. And Jesus makes this point that if you and I want to be the protos, the first, then we have to be the eschatos, the last. Right? He's flipping the world's definition upside down. And so that's true. If what Jesus is telling us is to be the protos, we have to be the eschatos, then how can we be last? And it's that third word, by being a servant of all. To be last means to be a servant of all. Servant is the Greek word diakonos and refers to a person who's serving or carrying out the commands or orders of someone else. Servants don't do what they want to do. Servants do what other people are asking them to do. Now, by the way, diakonos is the same word that is translated deacon in several other verses in the New Testament. And that gives you a sense of what deacons do in a church. They serve others. But here's the special nuance about the word diakonos. Servant is not the same thing as slave. There's a separate Greek word for slave. That's the Greek word doulos. And that's not the word being used here. It's using the word diakonos. A slave is someone who carries out someone else's orders because they're bound or have to. They're forced to. But a diakonos, a servant, is someone who by their own choice, out of their own agency, chooses to serve someone else. A servant is someone who by their own choice desires to put someone else's will and needs above their own. That's the difference. Dallas Seminary professor Dr. Thomas Constable put it this way. The Greek word for servant, diakonos, describes someone who serves willingly out of their own heart, chooses to do this. So when you put all of this together, we get a pretty clear definition of what Jesus means here about greatness in God's kingdom. The greatest, the protos in God's kingdom, is the one who is last, the eschatos, because that person is willingly choosing to serve all others before themselves. Willingly serving all others before themselves. It's a radical call. The world tells us to be the greatest. No, you have to exceed everyone. You have to be superior to everyone else. 
And Jesus says, no, that's backwards thinking. Being the greatest is allowing everyone else to exceed you. Being great is not about serving yourself. Being great is about serving others. And someone with a kingdom mindset will be, by definition, have a servant heart. Now, this is not the only place in the Gospels where Jesus taught this important lesson. So in Matthew 23, he is doing this long rebuke of the scribes and Pharisees, the religious leaders. And Jesus is calling them out because they loved placing themselves in positions of honor above other people. And he points to that example and says, no, my disciples, they do something different. And Jesus tells them this, the greatest among you, the greatest shall be your servant. And whoever exalts himself will be humbled. And whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Greatness means servant. In another scene, the mother of two of Jesus' disciples, so the mom of James and John, that mom goes to Jesus and she asks Jesus when he becomes king to put her sons at his right and left hand. She wanted the highest positions outside of Jesus to be for his, reserved for her sons. And the other disciples hear this and they think, you know, did, John, did James and John put up their mom to do this? And so they start arguing. And Jesus, he stops their bickering and says, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Here, Jesus not only commanded his followers to have an upside-down mindset on greatness, but he also gave them the reason why. Why should, we be, why should we put others first? Because Jesus put others first. That was his mission. And so we look like Jesus when we put others first. Now, if you're wondering, hey, why should we even seek to be great in the kingdom at all? We're not, we're not really seeking greatness in the kingdom. We're seeking to look more like Jesus. That's the call. And we resemble Jesus when we serve others. We resemble Jesus when we serve others. We're commanded to be more and more like Jesus. And we do that by serving others. Jesus demonstrated this principle of greatness by putting others first in one of the most humble acts ever performed. He washed his disciples' feet before the Passover meal. So back then, remember Jesus and his disciples, as they traveled from town to town, they traveled primarily by foot. And the primary footwear back then, most common footwear, were sandals, open-toed sandals. And they didn't have paved roads back then. And so their feet would get very dirty as they traveled. And this is especially true when you consider that the roads traveled by people were also traveled by their animals. And so the custom was, you know, when you entered a person's house back then, it was necessary to wash the dirt and the dust and the manure off your feet. And so you'd go to this big, huge vessel storing water, and you would dip a pitcher in, and you would clean your own feet. Unless you entered a wealthy person's house. If you entered the house of a wealthy person, then they would have servants to clean your feet. Now, because of the disgusting nature of having to wash off the dirt and the dust and the manure off of a stranger, of a guest's feet... The task to do so was reserved for the lowest-ranked servant. So I want to a little bit demonstrate what that looked like. So, Vincent, I'm going to call you up. Thank you for volunteering to do this. I'm going to show you what a foot washing looked like back then. So we're going to have Vincent come and sit on this. Now, the Bible says that Jesus 
tied a towel around his waist. That doesn't mean he took a towel and actually tied the towel around his waist. It meant that he used the rope that was holding up his robes and took a towel into it so it was around his waist. And so back then, they would just have like a basin and they would just grab a pitcher of water. I hate feet. (laughs) And so they would grab a pitcher of water and they would just pour the water to kind of wash off all the dust and the dirt. And then they would use the towel to dry off and wipe away all the dust and dirt and manure. Now notice that as he's figuratively putting others above him by serving, he's also literally putting others above him by serving. Thank you, Vincent. Hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. (laughs) The Bible says that the king of all glory stooped down, tied a towel around his waist, and washed the feet of every one of his disciples. And afterwards, he told them this, if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. And if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. King of all creation, stooped to perform the lowest servant's task. And he connected that to greatness. Commanded his followers to do the same. Called them blessed if they did that. This is what greatness looks like in the kingdom of God. A willingness to do lowly things in service to others. And I want you to note this. That Jesus did this. Foot washing the night before the hardest day in his life. Washed the disciples' feet the evening before Good Friday. Pastor Steve Besner noted this. Sometimes I joke about what I would do if I had only one day left to live. Eat junk, go crazy, etc. And today it hit me that Jesus washed feet. King of all glory, king of the universe, washed the feet of his disciples, one of whom he knew would betray him in a few hours, and one of whom he knew would deny him in a few hours, and washed their feet, commanded us to do the same. One of the verses that Debbie read earlier speaks to this, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. You and I want to be great in the kingdom, and we will have servant hearts. Maya Moore is one of the greatest athletes of the last century. She led her high school basketball team to four consecutive state championships, and twice won the National Female High School Basketball Player of the Year. Now, she continued that success in college, leading the University of Connecticut to -to back-to-back national championships and a then record at that time of 90 wins in a row. Maya twice won National Female College Basketball Player of the Year. 
Now, unsurprisingly, she was drafted first overall in the 2011 WNBA draft. And in her first season, she won Rookie of the Year and helped them to win the WNBA championship. In her first eight years of professional basketball, she led her team to four WNBA championships, winning league MVP in 2000, uh, winning league MVP, and in 2017, Sports Illustrated named her the greatest winner in the history of women's basketball. With so much talent and so much success, she could have done whatever she wanted to do. But in February of 2019, at the age of 30, still in the prime of her career, Maya shocked the sports world and announced she was stepping away from basketball, stepping away from her contract, stepping away from endorsement deals for an indeterminate amount of time. You see, Maya is a devout Christian. She loves Jesus. And through volunteering at a prison ministry at her church, she met an inmate named Jonathan Irons, who told everyone who would listen that he was not guilty of the crime for which he was imprisoned. And after a lot of conversations with Jonathan and examining the details of the case, Maya believed that Irons had been wrongly convicted. And so she used her own resources, her wealth, her influence to hire attorneys to assist Jonathan in his legal fight. On July 1st, 2020, after serving 22 years for a crime that he did not commit, Jonathan Irons walked out of prison a free man where Maya was waiting with open arms. And Irons... Irons spoke about Maya's advocacy for him and said, she's at the top of the mountain, right? She's the greatest. And taking a break to help me. I went from not having anybody to having an army, and I feel like she's at the head of that. When asked why she would give up her career and professional success and everything for someone else, Maya said this, even though I've got a lot of awards and honors, it's nothing compared to what the Lord has done to my heart and what he's done for the world, and I want to do his will with my life. Gave up everything. The story has an even happier ending. At the end of summer of 2020, Maya and Jonathan were married. <laughs> what would compel someone considered among the greatest her sport has ever seen to give up something for everything, everything for someone else? Only a servant heart. Only a kingdom mindset. Only a heart that has been transformed by Jesus Christ. Because whether Maya is the greatest female basketball player of all times is irrelevant. Whether she is great in the kingdom of God because she put others before herself, that's all that matters. And that's all that matters for us as well. Whatever accomplishments we have currently in our life, they don't matter as much in the kingdom because that's not the definition of greatness in the kingdom. If you and I want to be great in the kingdom of God, if we want to look like Jesus, if we want to obey his command to us, we will serve others and put them before us. This passage ends with one more lesson about greatness. The Bible says, And Jesus took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to him, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. So how does receiving children, serving children, connect to greatness in God's kingdom. Well, raise your hand if at any point in your life when you had kids that you were kind of stressed because you were trying to juggle your schedule with your kids' schedule, right? Like, it's a hassle. 
to have to deal with sports schedules and music lessons and, and dance class or youth group. So many families today orient their entire schedule around their kids' schedule. I mean, growing up in an Asian household, family was of central importance, and my parents made sure my education and my extracurricular activities were a focal point of their schedules and lives. That's our modern culture. But that was not the culture back then. That's the opposite of how children were treated in biblical times. Back then, children were valued only insofar as they were helpful around the house or in the fields or were actively learning a trade. A child's value was equal to the value of whatever they were able to contribute to the work and functioning of the home. And so small children contributed very little. And so they had very little value culturally. And so by bringing in a child as an illustration of the point that Jesus was making about greatness in God's kingdom, Jesus was making this additional point. Yeah, the greatest in God's kingdom is the one who's last because they're willingly choosing to serve others before themselves, including people not considered significant by the culture. We're called to serve others regardless of whether the culture deems them worthy of being served. We're called to serve everybody. Dr. Constable put it this way. A child was the least significant person in Jewish and in Greco-Roman culture. By using a child as his object lesson, Jesus was saying that service involves caring about people, even insignificant people such as children. Serving all others. One of the things that we covered and discussed last month when we observed the sanctity of human life is that all of us, every single human being is made in the image of God. And because we're made in the image of God, every single human being has equal worth and dignity. And because we have equal worth and dignity, we all, did, we all deserve to be served by others, regardless of what the culture says. Jesus made that exact point in Matthew 25 when he said that, you know, when we serve the needs of the poor and the sick and the stranger and the prisoner, classes of people that were considered insignificant by the culture at that time, Jesus says, when you serve them, you serve me. As you did it to the one of thee, the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Because here's the reality. It's easy to serve others when we like them. It's easy to serve others when they're easy to love. When it doesn't demand much from us. When the culture values them. It's easy to be motivated, for instance, to serve our friend who just had a baby and we take them a meal. That's easy. It's more difficult to be motivated to serve a homeless stranger by bringing them a meal. It's easy to be motivated to give to a fundraiser to a cause we already believe in. We will gladly open our checkbooks for Young Life and Youth for Christ. Are we willing to give to famine relief in the African desert? To catastrophe in a country we don't know? Jesus told his disciples, the measure of your greatness is in your ability to put all others above yourselves. All people, to elevate all people, to lift all people, to be selfless and self-sacrificial to all people. That is greatness in the kingdom of God. Family, you and I, we're not called to live mediocre lives of faith. We're not. Because it is easy to be content with where we are in faith. We're content just attending three out of four services on a weekend in a month. 
We're content just serving occasionally. And you and I are called to more than that. We're called to look like Jesus. We're called, we're commanded to do that. We're commanded to be selfless, to put others above ourselves, to serve all others. And when we do, and when we do, we're considered great in his kingdom. One final point. We spent the majority of this time focusing on how we might become great in the kingdom of God. And that's important. But I don't want us to miss this other key point and important lesson from this passage. And it's this, that Jesus is the greatest in the kingdom of God. That Jesus is the greatest in the kingdom of God. We began this passage. There's, there's two parts of this passage. The first part is Jesus tells us what's going to happen to him. He was going to be turned over to religious authorities. They were going to kill him. He was going to die. And the second part of this passage is what it means to be a servant of all. And the juxtaposition of his death on the cross and being a servant of all points to the fact that Jesus is the greatest in the kingdom of God. It points us to the greatness of Christ. We read this verse in Matthew 20 earlier, and I want you to focus on the end of it, right? But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus connected serving with giving his life. Apostle Paul wrote this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. That Jesus left the riches of heaven for the poverty of earth so that you and I could enjoy the riches of heaven. The first became last. Put others above himself. In the Philippians verses that Debbie read earlier, we see the same connection. The Bible says that Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, even being born in the likeness of men. And then what? And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The clear connection between servanthood and the cross. On the cross, Jesus died the most excruciating, most humili humiliating, most humble death possible in order to provide us an atonement for our sin. In order to serve us and put, our, our, put us above himself. And doing that proved that Jesus is the ultimate servant. He's the greatest servant, meaning he's greatest in the kingdom of God. Right after these verses in Philippians, explaining what Jesus did, it then says this, And therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. The therefore connects the reasons why, right? That Jesus emptied himself to the point of death, and therefore, and therefore his name is the name above all names, and every knee shall bow. Jesus is the ultimate service servant. Jesus is the greatest Jesus is the king of the kingdom. How great is our God. Recognizing who Jesus is drives us to worship his greatness. The Bible says, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised and his greatness is unsearchable. So where do we go from here? First, I will seek greatness in God's kingdom. I will seek greatness in God's kingdom. Now, there are things in our lives where it's going to be impossible for us to be the greatest in. 
Right? It is physically impossible for me to be the greatest basketball player in the world. That is not in the cards for me. We're not going to be the greatest baker, the greatest teacher, the greatest musician. But we can all achieve greatness in the kingdom of God. You and I are not called to live mediocre lives of faith. And my challenge and encouragement to us is this, that we would live, live in such a way as to be a threat to hell. And we do that by serving others selflessly. Whether that's when someone in our family, or our friends, our neighbors, our coworkers, or complete strangers, we achieve greatness when we elevate others above ourselves. I recognize that everyone's in a different season of life, right? And for some of you right now, managing your current life is all that you can handle, right? You're already stretched just doing that. Even Michael Jordan took a few seasons off to play baseball. So it's okay to rest. But this is a matter of prayer between you and the Lord, right? In prayer, ask the Lord to reveal to you ways that you can seek greatness in his kingdom. And maybe it's a season of rest in preparation for a future season of service, or maybe God will bring to your mind people right now in ways right now that you can serve and be great in the kingdom. Either way, seek the Lord's will for your life in prayer. Second, I will serve children in God's kingdom. I will serve children in God's kingdom. As we read our passage today, we heard that receiving children and serving children is a way to be great in the kingdom. A few weeks ago that I noticed, I noted that we have a lot of new families at LC3. We serve a lot of kids. Y'all don't know that on a given weekend, just from nursery to grade five, on a given weekend, we serve about 200 kids. Requires a lot of volunteers. So thank you to all of those who are currently volunteering in our children's ministry. We still have a few uh, needs there. And we would just, again, please, if you can just serve one service a month, will you let us know by just writing that on your Connect card or putting that on your app and someone from our children's ministry will be in contact. But let us live greatness in the kingdom of God by loving the children of this church well. And then lastly, I will serve others through the Neighborhood Center. The Neighborhood Center is our umbrella ministry that represents a series of connected ministries meant to serve our neighbors and our neighborhood. From our food bank to the community walks that we started a few weeks ago to the work that was done yesterday for, to start and kick off our community garden, um, our desire is to begin to serve our community really well. Um, so again, thank you to everyone. We have a few pictures from what happened yesterday to our, our, our task force warrior service project yesterday. About 20 of you all came to serve and help prepare the grounds for our community garden. We're hoping to launch later this year. But thank you again for your service for that and for your hard work. Uh, more details about that garden uh, coming up. One other thing I'd, I'd covet your prayers on is just pray about your potential engagement and involvement in Afghan resettlement. And so since the fall, we've been in discussion with Samaritan's Purse about a program that they have to resettle Afghan refugees from U.S. military bases into local communities. And our global missions team and the elder board worked through details with our attorneys and insurance company, and we recently approved moving forward with this engagement. And so later this spring, we'll be supporting one Afghan family who's going to be settled into Pierce County. Um, some more information about the ways that you can help will be forthcoming. We'll talk a little bit more about that next week. But if you're already interested or want more details, just let us know on your Connect card or through the app, and someone from our missions team will be in touch. A lot to process. Coretta Scott King said, the greatness of a community is most accurately measured by the compassionate actions of its members. And this is especially true for faith communities. Our greatness as a church will not be measured by our attendance. 
It will be measured by our compassionate actions, by how we put others before ourselves. Our vision as a church is not to be a status quo church with a mediocre impact on people or a mediocre impact on communities. No, our vision as a church is to be a church that shakes the very foundation of hell with how we follow Jesus Christ. And so let us live out our faith in such a way that the devil is actively figuring out a way to how to tear us down. Let us be a threat to hell. Let us live lives of greatness, and we do that by being the hands and feet of Jesus to those around us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you that you are great. Thank you for what you did for us. Thank you for pouring yourselves out on the cross to serve us, to bring us back into relationship with you. And Lord, so out of a desire, out of gratefulness for how you served us, and out of a desire to be more and more like you, I pray, Lord, that you would grow our hearts, you would grow our faith, and grow our desire to be great in the kingdom by serving others. Lord, even now that you would just give us uh, just a measure, a glimpse into the ways that we can do that even now. Thank you that you call us to be great in the kingdom, and we do that out of love for the king. We lift up all that we have. In the name of Christ our king. Amen.